0: As we read the scriptures, we um, sometimes remove ourselves from the text, right? We read it uh, that that's to them and not to me. Oftentimes, we can't place ourselves in the text, maybe because of what it's saying and it doesn't seem relevant, or maybe it seems like it doesn't uh, fit our time, or perhaps you just don't think it would apply to you at all. Or since Paul here, for example, in, in Romans, where we'll be turning today, he's writing to the church at Rome almost 2,000 years ago. How can this letter, how can Paul be writing to me in the same way he wrote to the church at Rome? We're going to be in Romans 15 today, and as I read this verse that we're going to read, I want you to hear it as Paul speaking to you. As Paul writing to you and saying this about you, and I want you to sense, what do I feel about this? What do I think about this? If this is Paul speaking this actually to me, what do I respond with? Here in Romans chapter 15, verse 14 says this, Paul speaking, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. He says to these believers, imagine you receiving this letter and he's speaking to you. I'm satisfied. I'm convinced that you are full of goodness. I'm convinced that you are filled with all knowledge. I'm convinced that you are able to instruct, able to teach one another. Perhaps you would say, you've got the wrong guy. <laughs> or or uh, clearly you don't know me that well if you think that I am full of goodness, or that I'm filled with all knowledge, or that even I'm able to teach or to instruct. I wish this were true, Paul, but this is the wrong guy. Here, Paul says that he is satisfied or he is convinced, he is persuaded that these people are this way, that they are full of goodness. How is a person ever persuaded? You're persuaded when you have enough evidence to be persuaded, when you've seen enough to to prove to you that, that this can be so. So, Paul has seen enough, or he knows enough that he can say, I'm, I'm fully satisfied. I am convinced that you are full of goodness and that you are filled with knowledge. How can Paul be satisfied with this? I think it relates to where he's just come out of in verse 13, his prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. If God is filling them as they believe, as they trust in him by the Spirit's power, well, why wouldn't Paul be able to have confidence that they then are full of goodness, that they are filled with knowledge? If God is the one filling them, if God is the one by the Holy Spirit's power changing these people, Paul says, I'm convinced that you are full of goodness and you are filled with knowledge. So then when we hear that, we think, well, that's not me. I know my heart, and I am not full of goodness, and I lack knowledge in so many ways, and and I lack wisdom in so many areas. How could this be said? Is it because these these Christians in Rome were were so solid? Well, we know the beauty of this chapter is it just comes out of chapter 14, and it shows us who he's addressing. Brand new Christians and 50-year-old Christians. He's addressing both immature Christians and Christians of the faith who've been there a long time. So he's not just addressing those who were mature and well-seasoned in their faith. He's addressing all walks of those in their faith. And yet he's convinced, he's satisfied to be able to say, you are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and ultimately able to instruct one another. Full of goodness is interesting because what do we think when we think of goodness? You may hear at a funeral, well, he was a good man. He was a good man. Now, what do people mean when they say that, that someone was a good person? They simply mean that he was not evil, that he was not wicked. This was not a man who was out to harm or hurt people. And and that idea is on the right track to be good. Good is obviously, as we know, the opposite of evil. But can any man be good? can any man be good? When I was in Bible college, I had a roommate. His name was Bill Yo, And every time you would ask him, how are you? What's the typical Canadian answer? 90% of the times, how are you? The answer is good. I'm good. But my roommate, Bill Yo would always answer, I'm well. And if you probed him and said, what do you, why do you say that? That's so different than everyone else. Why do you say I'm well? He says, because only God is good. I'm not good. Only God is good. And he gets that from Luke 18:19, where Jesus himself said that no one is good except God alone, when the rich young ruler called him good teacher. Jesus responded, said, are, are you calling me God? Because only God is good. Right? And so that's interesting when we think about that. Can men be good? Well, here in Romans chapter 15, it says that these men and women of the faith are filled with goodness. They are, quote unquote, Good. Well, how can it be so? It can be so when it is the fruit of God at work in us. Because if God is good, and if he is bearing fruit in us, if he is reflected in us, then there is goodness in us, and there can be goodness in us. That is Christ in us. The Holy Spirit in us, growing us, shaping us, chiseling us. That's how there can be goodness. And we know goodness is possible in people, because it is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5 tells us, the fruit of the Spirit, so the the very fruits that the tree of a Christian produces, not by its own doing, just like an apple does not produce itself, the nutrients through the tree produces apple. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. It is a fruit. It is something that is growing up in the people of God by the power of God. So yes, there can be goodness. In Ephesians chapter 5, it also tells us that goodness is possible. It says, for you were once in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. It says, walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. So is it possible for us to be full of goodness? So then Goodness is possible. We know that. We see it as a fruit of God in our lives. It's possible by God's power. But can we be full? If if I evaluate my own life and even my best days, I would still say I am not full of goodness. There's no way that I could be described as full of goodness. I know that there is uh, sin in my heart still. That there is. I'm plagued by stains of temptation and sin. Am I full of goodness? By no means. But. Think of how Paul is addressing this passage. He's speaking to individuals who are a part of a collective. These people are not just solo Christians. They're not just doing this thing on their own, thinking, I can get along on my own without a body. No, 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 they are a part of a body. He's been addressing this entire time. He's been addressing these people together. You yourselves, is what he says. He's addressing them collectively. So, what happens if you have a half- of a glass of water and I have a half a glass of water and we combine them, we have a full glass of water. But I can address both of you who have two glasses, half glasses of water, I can say, you are full of water. If you just combine it, it's true, the statement is true, that there is full goodness in the body. The fullness here is collectively, it's not completely on an individual basis, but you realize the collective, the, the group is made up of individuals who have this fruit of goodness in them. It's growing, but it's unique and individual in each person. You might struggle in one area, I do not. You might be good and gracious and and the polar opposite of evil in one area where I might be struggling and tempted. So it's beauty in the body of Christ that we have this mixture of people who have fruits, little fruits if it is, of goodness, but collectively, We are full of enough goodness that Paul could say to the church in Rome, he can say to us as a body, I'm satisfied, I'm convinced that you are full of goodness. And the fullness of this goodness that he's talking about is, it has an end goal. The end goal is, you have enough goodness in you that you're able to instruct one another. That you're able to live in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God, and it is transformative to the world for the gospel. You're collectively full But take note again of what this goodness is. It is a battle against evil. Only God is good because he is the uh, definition of good. There is no evil in him. So when we are walking and living in goodness, it is a battle against evil. It's a battle against injustice done to the lowly. To be good is to care for the unborn children. To be good is to care for the homeless. To be good is to care for the frail and the outcasts. That's to be good. To care for those who cannot care for themselves. Ultimately, to be good is more than just horizontal social justice kind of things. To be good is about waging war against false gods. Because false gods are evil. Because they rob God of the glory he deserves. They rob God of the attention, the affection he deserves. And so to be good is to eliminate those false idols in our own hearts, in our own lives, to say this thing is trying to take the place of God. Money is consuming my mind. So to, to be good is to destroy the thing that is robbing God of glory. That's what goodness is, is to wage war on false idols. And we do that each individually. So then collectively we are full of goodness. And that has power. That has Power. In Ephesians chapter 5, it also says this, says, Pay careful attention then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what his will is, that is to abolish evil in our own lives, to, to wage war against the flesh, so that we may in ourselves individually be as good as God is producing that fruit in us so that collectively we may be full of goodness. How do we do that? We contribute not just individually, but with each other. We, we serve one another and we help each other serve in our areas of strength. Collectively, we strive for goodness. But the beauty of it all is it's not our fruit it is the fruit of the Spirit. I love, that's why in in, uh, in verse 13, where it talks about um, God doing it. God is filling. God, by this Spirit, is doing this change. And so the same applies. For us, if there is any goodness in us, it is not because we inherently want that. Our nature is selfish. Our nature wants what we want, and what we want is opposed to God, how many people have you heard and, and do you know who say, I don't want to come to God because he won't let me do the things I want. They just see God as this big restrictive power in the sky. Oh, God won't let me do X, Y, and Z. I don't want that, God. I don't want your Jesus because I feel like I'm going to be hindered in all the joys I want to experience, right? So many people. I'm not coming to God. I can't do that anymore. What, like, what is that? Well, that's what happens when you're foolish because you don't realize the the ultimate goodness in and of a relationship with God. We note this carefully, that we are prone to foolishness. Ephesians 5 tells us to pay attention, to surround ourselves with community because the days are evil. There is opportunity every moment to be foolish, to be unwise, to be evil and not good. But by God's grace and with the help of others, we strive for goodness. And he produces that fruit in us and it produces change in our lives. But more than that, he's convinced not just that they are uh, full of goodness, but he also says, filled with all knowledge. Filled with all knowledge. And, and if you know yourself, and I know myself, that I definitely am not filled with all knowledge. I don't have all the knowledge of everything there is to know about God, about the Bible. Every time I read the Bible, I've been reading the Bible through once a year since I was in Bible college in 2007, And it's still new to me every time. Every page is something fresh, new, that I did not discover before, that I did not appreciate before, that I did not apply before. My knowledge will never be complete, nor will yours. And so it's interesting then that Paul, addressing these people, says, I'm convinced that you are filled with knowledge, all knowledge. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about, firstly, the most important knowledge there is, is to know Christ intimately, in your heart, a relationship with God. I'm convinced, and of course he's convinced, if they are believers, that they know Christ, that they know who Christ is, that they know a bit of redemption history, that they themselves are not naturally good. That's what you need to know. You need to know the bad news so that you can appreciate the good news. If you don't ever let your doctor talk, you're never going to take the surgery to bring the healing. You you know the the goodness uh, of the gospel which says you're not good at all. That you have enough knowledge of that to be transformed for God. It's the beauty of the gospel. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the knowledge he had and how he was extending it to the people in Corinth. He said to this, um, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21, he says, For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those Who believe through the foolishness of what is preached? So when it comes to knowledge, it's like, well, do you know what ought to be preached? Because Paul described it as foolishness to the world. It's not in eloquent words or or deep knowledge. You don't need to study for twenty years to be able to tell someone uh, that that they are in danger before God and there is a rescue through Christ Himself. You you don't need to have ten years experience in understanding that. To know what is preached, it is the foolishness to the world. It just takes that knowledge. Paul said earlier in that chapter, he said, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. It's about knowing the gospel, knowing Christ. You don't need to know every king in the Old Testament. You don't need to know every author in the New Testament. You need to know Christ. And in knowing Christ, you want to increase in your knowing him intimately, but also your knowledge of him. The more you know about him, the more you're going to worship and praise him. Uh, The the beauty of knowledge is the more you gain about God, the more you realize you don't know. The more you begin to discover intricacies about God and you begin to unfold the, the, the complexities of who God is and how he works in the world, the more you think, I don't know a thing about this God. That's the beauty of the knowledge of God. And the reason that God has designed it that way, that the the more we get into God, the more we grow in, in general knowledge of God, the deeper we are perplexed is because in that perplexion, in that mystery is worship. If we knew everything there was to know about God and we knew we could put him in a box and we could write a textbook on him, we would not worship him. But the more you begin to know about God, the more you worship him in awe and wonder and you are left silenced before God. And that's why Paul, when he's writing to the church at uh, Colossians, uh, he says that he was praying for they would increase in the knowledge of the things of God. Because the more we know about God, the more we know about how God works, how God has been merciful, what he has done, how he operates, the more we know, the more we worship. The more we are left speechless the more the, the, the less arrogant we become. And that leads to this next part is not only full of goodness, filled with knowledge, but has an end goal. Able to instruct. This is an important implication. Firstly, we need instruction. All of us need instruction. Doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 65 years, you need instruction. Doesn't matter how knowledgeable you are, you could have a PhD in theology and you need instruction. Because the things of God ought to be transforming us, growing us, chiseling away parts of our life and, and parts of our self that are no longer pleasing to God. And so we need to be instructed, growing in that way. If we fail to see our need of instruction, we remain not only ignorant, but arrogant. If we think, I don't need to be taught, we're arrogant before others, but ultimately before God. If we think that we know, and we don't need instruction, I don't need to be taught, we are arrogant, not just ignorant. Who likes to know-it-all? No one likes to know-it-all. And You know why we don't like know-it-alls? It's because they're arrogant. They're self-obsessed. They're full of pride. They're not teachable. And because they're not teachable, they're ignorant, they're idiots in a lot of areas because they pretend to know and they're unwilling to be instructed. So they make dumb decisions. That's what children do, right? When children th- think they know everything, teenagers especially think, I know everything, what well, happens? Well, they fail time and time and time again because they knew it all and they were unwilling to take instruction, so therefore they flopped and failed. Same thing with adults, with all of us. If we, if in any way of our life, think we, we don't need to be instructed, we're going we're gonna to falter and fail. We always need to be instructed. That's the implication of this verse. It's not that anyone is exempt from instruction. We're all needing to be instructed. If we are not teachable, we fail to recognize the things we don't know. And if that's the case, if we think we're full of knowledge and, and have no room to grow, we will be lacking in our worship. We will not be left in awe and wonder. There won't be more discovery of who God is and how great he is in your life. We'll miss out, not just on things in life and and cool factoids and and learning things about uh, different Bible stories, but we miss out on worship of God. The the more we know, the less we realize. But this verse also implies something else, not just that we all ought to be instructed, but that we all, if you are a believer, you ought to instruct. He says, I'm satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, all of them in the church, You yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and you, all of you, are able to instruct one another. All of them. And remember, he's not just addressing the veteran Christians. He's addressing those who are new in the faith. They have something to teach someone who's been a Christian 65 years. Maybe it's about boldness. Maybe it's about courage. They have something to teach. They are able to instruct. I love it because what Paul says when, when he went to Corinth preaching the gospel, it wasn't with eloquence and full of knowledge. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. He says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing ab- uh, among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. So if you think that there's no way you can instruct other people, that you can teach other people in the faith, until you have grown in knowledge, until you've been a Christian 20 years, until you go to school, like, that's foolish. Because then, as Paul's very argued, there is like, if I came in human wisdom, then, then you would be based, your face would be based on that wisdom and knowledge, not on a demonstration of what God can do in the life of every person. How are we able? How are we able to do this? How are we able to instruct? How can Paul be so sure? Well, because it is God who gives us the words to say, the, the, the prompts to make the demonstration of power to display in in the presence of others. It's God who does it. So Paul can be confident that we're able. If you've been transformed by God, if you have, it's amazing because even that, the, the act of initial faith in Christ is instructive to others, right? So a person who has never yet met Jesus is crushed with the guilt and the weight of their sin. So what do they do? Well, they go to Christ, and, and then they throw all their sin and all their guilt and all their shame on Christ because he says, come to me if you're burdened with all that sin, and I will take that upon myself. I will exchange your sin for my righteousness, and you will be free, and I will stand before the wrath of God, and all of your sin will be p- punished, and there will be not a drop of punishment left for you. So this person comes in faith. They're transformed by Christ. They are willing submission to Christ. And that is instructive for those who've been a Christian 20 years, who maybe are living with guilt today. So what am I to do with this guilt? What am I to do with this shame? You throw it on Christ. And, and the person who just embraces it for the first time, they are more instructive because you see the greater joy. You see that greater love. You see a fervency and a fire for the love of the Lord because it is so fresh. Sometimes when you've been a Christian a long time, it, it gets stale. It, which is ridiculous. When you, when you say it out loud, it's ridiculous that, that having God's grace towards you, having forgiveness from God, having the love of God towards you would ever grow stale, but it's us. So a new believer instructs us, instructs us in the love of God, instructs us in what it means to be passionate and affectionate towards Jesus. They love Jesus. They don't just love what Jesus gives them, forgiveness. They love Jesus himself. So they're instructive to us. You don't have to be a Christian more than 30 seconds to instruct another person, to be able to teach another person. And then as we walk through life, as we go through life and God brings us through seasons, we're able to instruct others on helping people point to God and point them to God and say, look, this is what I've been through and and the ultimate solution is not me pulling myself up, but it was me coming to God. We're always able to instruct. And we all have different uh, life paths. We all have different struggles we've been through. We all have different abilities and skills. So, again, if you think about the fullness of the teaching in a a community of people, it ought not to come from one person. It ought to come from all different walks of life. Uh, People who've been a Christian for 50 years, people who've been a Christian for 35 seconds, people who've gone to school and not gone to school. You need instruction from all different people so that you may be more well formed as a believer. That's the beauty of the body. God never designed us to be on our own. He designed us to be a part of the body so that we can be instructed and grow in the faith. Each person is able to instruct. It's not just a certain role. And the beauty of this verse is the last part. We're able to instruct one another. One another brings to mind the idea of discipleship. We ought to Discipleship is just caring for the soul of another person. That's what discipleship is. That's what happens and should happen in genuine fellowship. Fellowship is not just a picnic. It is a picnic with a purpose. It is so that you can encourage the soul of another person. That's what makes it fellowship. That's discipleship all around. We're to be disciples. You know what the disciples are? They're learners. But according to Matthew 28, they're also disciple makers. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you make disciples. You want more people to know and experience the joy of Christ. And so here, the, this verse ends with the idea of the one another's, Looking not to your own interest, looking not to yourself, but looking outside of yourself. You, you might say, well, I don't think I'm a teacher. I don't think I'm able to instruct. Put yourself aside for a minute. Think about another person who needs that from you today. Think about those who, who need your instruction. And, and you don't have to give a lecture at the front you walk and you do life together. That's the beauty of discipleship, is doing life together with the ultimate goal of encouraging each other's faith. We need to be discipled by someone. We need someone or, or two people who really pour into us, who check in on our faith, who pray for us individually. We need those people in our lives who help us, but we also need to be that person. doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for five days. You need to be discipling someone who's maybe not yet a Christian or or, or a 30-second year old, uh, 32nd old Christian. We need to be discipled, but we also need to be discipling or else the discipleship, the knowledge, the learning, the growing becomes stagnant and useless. God has made the body to be a living organism that is growing and building itself up in love according to Ephesians chapter four. We need to be those then who are full of this goodness collectively by God's fruit in our lives, filled with knowledge as God speaks to us through his word and through each other instructing and being instructed as God would allow, and caring for the souls of one another. This verse says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Do you believe that? Can, can you take that and say, I can see how Paul could say that to me, because it's not ultimately my goodness, it's not my knowledge it's not my instruction, but it's God at work in me. May we then leave this place today meditating upon these words and thinking how God is doing that in us and through us, that we are not solo, that we are not the end of the game, that there are those who will come after us who, who deserve. Don't they deserve instruction? Don't they deserve your love and their care for their soul? Of course they do. So then let us be those who take this upon ourselves And and by God's grace, we submit to him and all that he's doing in us, filling us with goodness, filling us with knowledge, instructing and instructing through us. May we be these people for his glory. Let me pray to that end. Father, we are so thankful that you alone are good, that there is not a drop of evil in you and that you don't need to be filled with knowledge because you are knowledge. You are the source of all knowledge. You are all. All wise. You lack nothing, and yet you are the God who is filling us. You are the God who is walking with us, strengthening us, empowering us. So God, may we be those who not just live lives of ignorance and arrogance. May we not be those who are too shy to embrace what you are doing in our lives, but instead allow us to to see the responsibility we have with all that you've given us to extend this to one another, to care for one another, so that your church might be well taken care of and instructed and growing because we realize the more that happens, the more we worship you as you so rightly deserve. Help us to do that today. In Christ's name we pray, amen.